Hey, Flo, how are you? Said President Obama, who seemed to be picking up right where he had left off three years earlier. I hope you've been recovering well. I'm doing great, Mr. President, I said. Thanks again for coming to visit me and my family in the hospital. Thank you, Flo, he said. Listen, I'm giving you a call to let you know that you'll be receiving the Congressional Medal of Honor in a few weeks. I was speechless. After explaining that the Pentagon would coordinate logistics, the president concluded our call on a gracious, humbling note. I'm so proud of you, President Obama said. Ever since I first heard your story, I had a feeling this Medal of Honor recommendation would cross my desk. After sincerely thanking the president and saying goodbye, I was quiet. Finding out that you will receive the nation's highest military award doesn't make you want to jump for joy or open a bottle of champagne. It is a solemn moment. The Medal of Honor, I said to myself in the kitchen, was far bigger than any one service member. In my case, it would represent four selfless men who made the ultimate sacrifice. From that day forward, their names would not only be on my wrist and in my heart, but I promised myself that they would be spoken every time someone asked to hear my story. Welcome to Glorious Professionals brought to you by GORUCK Media. I'm Jason, here with Rich. Our guest today is Medal of Honor recipient, Captain Flo Groberg. Flo grew up in France, became a U.S. citizen in 2001, and joined the U.S. Army in 2008. He received the Medal of Honor for actions he took on August 8, 2012 in Afghanistan. His story is one of service and sacrifice, and it's in every way a story of how the American dream is alive and well. Short backstory, we all met at the New York City Veterans Day Parade in 2018, where Flo was the Grand Marshal, and he was there with his then bride-to-be, now-wife Carson. Flo, welcome to the show. Jason, Rich, I'm humbled and honored to be on the show with you two incredible Americans, so I'm excited. Well, thank you, sir. Before we get to some of the, you know, the the Medal of Honor and the men whose stories you want to share today, I I, want to start with just how you grew up you know, an, an immigrant to America, you grew up in France. Tell us about what, what would ultimately lead to your service in, in the armed forces that started in France. Yeah, I was born in France. I never met my biological father. My mom you know, raised me for the first couple of years of my life, um, you know, on her own. And I've been lucky. I'm just, you know, my entire life is all about being blessed and lucky. At the same time, she got an opportunity to meet, you know, this guy named Larry Groberg, who was American. He's from Gary, Indiana. I lived in Chicago. He was working around the world. He was a businessman and they fell in love. And after a couple of years of dating, he became the father figure that I needed in my life. And you fast forward a few years later when I was about 11 years old, he, you know, he asked my mom if uh, she'd be willing to move to the U.S. And so, of course, she told him that he had convinced me, which he did, simply by uh, convincing me that I would be eating McDonald's and I'd get to be Michael Jordan if I moved to the States, which <laughs> in a very few short seconds, I my entire loyalty to my country, to my friends, to my sports, my school, everything that was about me was sold for Big Mac and this, you know, imaginary figure at the time for me named Michael Jordan. And so we moved here when I was about 11 years old. All right. So Phil, let, let, let's go back a little more though, right? So suburbs of Paris from 1983 to 1994, right? The, the first trip you took to Algeria was when you were three. Yeah. Your, your mom was French, but family was originally from Algeria. Right. And w- what I really want to get to is I want to talk about the impact that, that those roots had on your, your upbringing and, and what your uncle Abdu meant to you. Those stories. 
you know, I, it's interesting, right? Because I don't never think about it. You know, that was just my childhood, just like any childhood. Just you know, I had family that was from Algeria, and I went to Algeria to visit them over the summers when I was a young boy. And you know, over there, my mom's brother Abdu, he was sort of the rock star of the family. He was young, you know, full of love and joy. He always had a smile on his face. Every time I was there, he was always the first one to welcome me at the airport. And he's my favorite person in the world, other than my parents. I uh, I wanted to be around. I was just literally addicted to this guy. He he was just so full of um, of, of happiness, and he always smiled and took me everywhere. He would buy me these orange sodas that they had, you know, very sugary sodas that they had over there. He would take me to the beach. Uh, and teach me about, you know, his world and his life and, uh, which was everything to me. And so I would say that my life from that age to really, I mean, when I started to comprehend things, right? So let's, let's pick it up when I was about three or four years old, uh, you know, my first real memories and to, to the moment that I moved to the States, you know, I, I, in France, I went to school by myself. I walked, you know, a mile and a half to school. Um, I would get up in the morning, make my own breakfast because my mom was gone before me and to go to work and she would be home way after me uh, from work. So you learn at a really you know, young age how to be independent. And it was just a different world. When I tell people that at the age of six years old, I was walking to school by myself. <laughs> and then after school, I would go to soccer practice, walk another mile and a half, two miles to soccer practice and then judo practice. And I'd get home by, you know, eight o'clock do some, uh, eat some dinner with my mother. So she, was, she got home around 7.30, she, she cooked dinner, so we eat 8.39. Uh, that's what the French do it. We eat late. And then I'll do about an hour and a half, two hours of homework and be in bed by 10.30, 11. Uh, that was my life growing up. It was very independent. I would, uh, you know, Wednesdays were a day off uh, of school, but it's like, it's a song, right? You go, you know, kids go play sports all day or you go to the center when you're, you know, young and all sorts of different activities. And we had no money, right? We were poor, but that was the system in France. You didn't have to have money to do all these activities, right? They pay an incredible amount of taxes over there mm -hmm. that you get to kind of do some really cool stuff as a child. And I do believe that the educational system is just a little bit more advanced, you know, from K through 12. But actually, I, it's not, I do believe I know it for a fact. It's, I don't even think it's comparable. Uh, it's incredibly tough. It's demanding. It's a lot of hours. And you just, you know, there's a lot of expectations, a lot of tests, but it was amazing, right? So, so was Algeria kind of just where you went, spent your summers or was it just, was it very different from being home in, in France or, or how did that work? I mean, there's religion differences sort of, and I mean, you're just kind of growing up around a lot of diversity, some travel, different cultures, sort of, right? I mean, Algeria was, it was just where my family was at. So I would go for two, three weeks in the summer, spend time with my family and then come home, right? My life was Paris and the suburbs of Paris. But there were hell of a lot of Algerians, a lot of Moroccans, a lot of Tunisians, a lot of Egyptians, but also a lot of uh, uh, Africans from Senegal, Kenya, all sorts of places, a lot of Portuguese in my neighborhood. I mean, we were, <laughs> you had people from all over the, the world, I felt like uh, where I grew up. It was super cool. But Algeria to me was just where my, that was my family's home, mm -hmm. right? So my mom's from there. She was born there. She lived the first 18 years in Algeria. And then she, you know, she served in the military in Algeria. And then she came to the, to France. Um, 
So it was sort of like, yeah, you could say my vacation club, right? In essence, when I went to Algeria, it was like I was just in a really warm place with a beach that was a little bit different in France. Yeah, more people spoke Arabic. Uh, and there were a lot more people, you know, practicing uh, uh, Islam, right? Uh, Muslim faith. But that's where I got to go hang out with my cousins and my uh, and my grandfather. And, and so you, you moved to the states, and, and what changed for you? And, and and you didn't speak English. That's kind of a thing. Yeah, I mean, this is a completely different world. It's like you know, you might as well just go to Mars. You know, it, you know, the only thing that you have is similar is that you, you're around human beings. But the language was different. The housing was different. I came, I lived in an apartment my entire life with hundreds of other apartments in the building. You know, I lived on the 13th floor and we didn't have an, uh, an elevator. So you climbed the stairs every day, uh, up and down. So you know, if you're handicapped, good luck. So to us, coming here in the suburbs of Chicago, I remember just looking at the size of the cars and thinking, what are these things? Like in Paris, at least at the time, you just can't have a big car. You'll never be able to park it, <laughs> you know? Mm-hmm. And so, and we didn't, we had one car that my mom had for a while when she was, you know, working and, and traveling. Most of the time, you used public transportation. So I came here, I was really in shock at the fact that the cars were massive. Uh, I couldn't find the metro to save my life. Why? Because I was in Palatine, Illinois. There's no metro. Uh, I couldn't find people. Uh, I was just, you know, I never lived in, in, in that type of environment. And then you add in the fact that I didn't speak the language, I was kind of lost, right? Uh, but I also knew that we were here for the long run. And I was excited. I was incredibly excited because I always thought of the U.S. sort of like Disneyland. It's just where all the cool stuff happens. When you watch on TV, I was like, I was super ecstatic to see a yellow bus. First time I ever stepped foot in one, like, you know, to go to school, I thought I just walked into the coolest, like, chocolate factory in the world. And I must have looked so stupid to all the kids around. Because I'm like, this is a bus. Oh, my God. Like, we didn't have that. <laughs> but I was, you know, the entire thing, the entire time I was here in the U.S., it was a little bit different, obviously, in, in terms of lifestyle. Uh, but, I mean, I was, I was in love with it. Every day was a new opportunity to do something different, learn something different, be around something different. And I knew that this was the country that I, I dreamed of coming since my mom had met Larry. Because every time he talks about the U.S. or he brought me things back from the U.S. And I visited the U.S. right a few times with him. And so it was just like this grandiose of a world that I, was full of, full of excitement. So what was it really, though? I mean, I just sort of outsider's perspective, because now, you know, you've been here so long. I mean, you're damn, you're, you're as American as they come in, in so many ways. Like, what was it, like, what was your perception of America growing up? Michael Jordan. I'm serious. <laughs> growing up? Yeah. I mean, sports, man. Like, seriously, Chicago Bulls, cool sports, sports, you know, Cosby show, it's TV, man. <laughs> huh. What else is there, right? You, you paint a story in your head based on what you see, what you hear, right? You, you all, sports have been a massive impact in my life. So, you know, obviously the most influential person in the world to me that represented the United States was Larry, my dad. Now, I loved him and he was a mate. He was an amazing person. So you already associate an entire population based off this one indicator, which is him. Then you add in you know, the, the TV shows and the way people are living, you know, the houses, even the coffee show played a really big deal for us because we love, we watch that show all the time. And so like, and you know, they live in a big house, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, but I mean, I didn't have that. I lived in a barely two bedroom apartment, one bathroom, you know, stacked up with, with, you know, and we're like sardines where we live. And I walked to school. I didn't have the same cool things. You know, I got into, you, you lived in the hood and you got into a lot of fights and did a lot of stuff, but I loved it. 
And so, like, that world was, like, a magical world to me. And, but, and you base it off what you see on TV and, and really the sports, right? The idea of meeting Michael Jordan or just going to a Chicago Bulls game was massive, was grandiose. Yes, McDonald's is a big deal, too, because, you know, I got to eat McDonald's once a month with my aunt when, because my parents did not take me there. Uh, and so my dad knew what he was doing when he's like, hey, you want to go to Atlanta McDonald's? You're probably eating McDonald's more often, right? And it was a joke, but I took it to heart. I'm like, hell yeah, let's go. So that's the truth, though. It's the connection that you don't, as a child, you don't have. You can't associate too many things. You have small pieces that become big ideas and big realities to you. And these were it. I didn't know anything else. I didn't think about the military. I didn't think about school, really. I looked at, you know, I didn't think about the lifestyle, the language. None of that mattered. To me, it was just like, wow, it's a really big place with a lot of cool things where all the the stuff that we dream about are at, literally. Like, it was the paradise. You know, you look at your life and you're like, wow, this is okay. I got this is my life. But man, over there, I bet you'd be so much better because of everything I see on TV. Okay, so let's let's move move forward just a little bit. And this is, uh, I'm sure, a, a, a difficult memory is when you found out that your your uncle had had been killed back back in Algeria like your favorite uncle i mean in, in reading your story in in your book like you you and just listening to you now like you really loved this man and he was a very impactful person on your life and like how far away from home did you feel at that point uh, so far I, I i just couldn't comprehend and understand the the reasoning the reality it's like it's not real right you feel like this is wrong it can't be him why you know, he was a gentle soul, but he was a warrior too, just like my grandfather was, just like my father was, just like, you know, I became in the end I, a warrior. He went and joined up the military in Algeria, became a special forces operator, got the opportunity to actually come to the U.S. and do some training with some of the spec ops folks because at a young age, he dreamed of becoming an imam. He wanted to be a preacher of the Muslim faith. Right, he loved his Quran, and he was dedicated to it. And so, when this terrorist group, Islamic radical group called the GIA, showed up in Algeria in the late 1980s, early 1990s, and decided to take over the government and pervert his religion, he knew that that was his sort of jihad, right? You know, and and that he had to go out there and fight for what he believed in, fight for his faith, fight for his family, fight for his country. And he decided to go and fight these individuals. And he fought him for quite a few years until he was killed in 1996 uh, during a ceasefire, during Ramadan. And they shot him. Then they beheaded him and they put him in a box and they sent him to my grandfather as a message that we don't care who you are, what your family has done for this country, because we're pretty well known in Algeria, specifically my grandfather, uh, for what he's done in his background. and. You know, and they want to send a message. I mean, unfortunately for the bad guys, and that message only motivated the people around my family and that part of the that of the world to fight them even harder. But it devastated me. I just couldn't grab. I couldn't. I was too young. Twelve years old. You know, I was, I was going to be thirteen a few months later. But I was twelve. You, you can't truly understand evil at that age um, unless you're directly facing it. And so the fact that I couldn't touch it, I couldn't, you know, I couldn't look at it. I couldn't be there with my family. That was so far away. That was uh, demoralizing. And 
and very very difficult to to swallow. And but it, it, in a weird way, again, where the enemy failed is it motivated another one of those individuals, me, into you know becoming the opposition. I mean, and I was going to wear one day the uniform and fight these people and destroy them, eradicate them from this world. And I would put I would give my life to, to do so. So at a young age, because of that specific moment, that anger, that pain, uh, that hurt, you know, sort of paved, started paving the way to a career in the military. So let's talk about where you were on, on 9-11. Because when I think about 9-11, I, I still just get enraged. And I can imagine that it, it was a similar feeling for you. And it was on top of the rage that you felt about your, your uncle's loss. I mean... I think every one of us were, was old enough to have been able to comprehend or, you know, understand 9-11, remember what they were doing on 9-11, right? I, I was in college, and I was coming back from an event that the, the night prior, and so I was driving. I was a freshman, and I arrived in my dorm room uh, right as the first airplane crashed into the towers. And I remember, like, walking into the dorm, the, the room, dorm room, and I, there were people watching and, like, just screaming like weird stuff, like like a shock. Not like because there wasn't terror yet, right? The second airplane hadn't hit yet, so it was sort of like shock. Like, holy crap! Like oh my god! Like can you believe this? I mean, and the War Trade Center, like it's just unbelievable. So I I kind of started walking a little bit faster, and I went into my common area, and I turned on the TV, and my roommate came out, and the other roommate came out. It was as if like they knew something was wrong. I think just the commotion that was happening. And once when we saw the second one hit, and I remember thinking like this, this, there's no way this is you know a coincidence, like or like what just happened. So we were we were trying to you know just like the rest of the world trying to put two and two together. And then you heard about the Pentagon, you heard about Pennsylvania, and by the end of the day, you realized that this was a terrorist attack. And when I found out, you know, the type of people that were, you know, conducted this attack, I was absolutely completely enraged. I mean, I lost my shit because here I was in my new adopted country, been naturalized five months, and the same type of individuals who killed my uncle, tried to terrorize my family, brought so much pain in my family and, you know, in my mother's country, were attacking my newly adopted nation. That evil, I felt it was so personal to me because I felt like it was following me. I knew at that point. That was it. That was just the catalyst of like, oh, I know. I don't care what I'm studying. I wanted to drop out of school. I know exactly what I'm going to do in my life. So why didn't you drop out? Because I talked to my father. And he served in Vietnam. And I was like, I'm, I'm going to go. I'm going to leave. And, and he, he told me something very interesting at the time. He asked me, actually, he asked me a question. He said, um, what did I ask of you when I gave you my name? And I couldn't remember. It saved my life. And honestly, I didn't care to remember that specific moment. And he told me, of Roberg, when he or she starts something, they finish it. So the day that they quit is the day that they're going to quit everything else that they start. Whether it's family, whether it's a job, whether it's it, you know a project, whatever it is, you're going. To, the day that you think, the day that you allow yourself to be a quitter, you will be a quitter the rest of your life. And so I want you to make the tough decision, which is get your education, finish what you started. He's like, bro, I promise you, what has just happened is not going to be a day or three day thing. It's not going to be a month. This is, this is going to be a long, 
long, long, long off-work situation, and you're going to have your opportunity to go out there and serve. But do something for yourself here, which is get that education, learn patience, and then once you get that degree, go serve your country. I guarantee you in the meantime, this country is going to have the best men and women who are going to step up and take care of us. But finish what you started. This is going to be a life lesson for you. And I hated them for it. I really did. I was pissed. This guy's more Republican than any Republican I've ever met, in essence, right? A damn cat could be running for uh, office as a Republican, and he'd vote for a cat over a human being as a Democrat, right? He's just old school. <laughs> it's, uh, it's just the truth. Rich, you met my dad. I mean, it's, uh, oh, yeah. you know, be, so it's this, this thing of, like, you just got to go out there and, and do the right thing, and it pissed me off so much, especially coming from him. It's almost like you're saying that he might have been the type of person who would say, oh, go go rush off and do what you got to do because we're a nation at war. But he advised tactical patience for his son. Yeah, well, and that's it's not for his son. I think it was just like the way he understood it. He knew that, I mean, he's worked his entire life overseas, right? I mean, he's he, this guy it, it was a big deal, believe it or not, you know, overseas. Like, yeah, I mean, I've been overseas with him when he was in his prime. And he knew people in Saudi Arabia. He knew people in Kuwait. I mean, he, he, he put it this way. He, he's going to kill me if you ever listen to this. There, I found an, an ID in one of these boxes from him with his face on it uh, for the la, la gendarmerie Marocaine, the uh, you know, police, like first police in, in Morocco. And it was his face and everything and a, and, and a different name. And, you know, the dude is Swedish background, white, you know, green eyes, blonde hair. Right. So it's not like he can pass uh, for a North African. And I asked him, I said, why the hell do you have a, you know, this, this ID card? And why is it a different name? And he's like, oh, you know, I'm selling them technology over there when I work for Motorola. So like just to bypass all the BS to get through the gate, it just kind of made me a, a card. I'm like, why, why couldn't he use your, your real name? He's like, ah, you know, this, this just, that's the name that they wanted to use. So it just to make, it made a lot, everything a lot easier. And so I started putting two and two together and I'm like, no way. There's just no way. And so when I ended up working for, you know, years later for, you know, with the agency, I started putting, you know, two and three together. And I started thinking either this guy was an asset or this guy was doing just a little bit more in his life. And it's the same thing with military records. Rich, you probably know more about this world, but (laughs) everything about him, there's an entry date into the army and then there's a discharge date. Yeah, like I'm talking about like 12 years of his of his life is completely like gone. It doesn't exist. Yeah, I I know people who who have gaps in their records. It's 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 the hardest thing to talk about. He never and you know him. He doesn't talk. No. He does not talk about this stuff ever. And so like so I listened to him. By that way, I'm saying like I knew there was there's a lot of wisdom in that man. Um, and he is one of the the smartest men I've ever met. met. Um, unfortunately, you know, he's gone through a lot of medical issues over the last decade of his life, which, you know, I, I frustrated the heck out of him, but I trust him. And so I, I took a night to sleep on it and I followed his advice. Uh, and you know what? I don't regret it. I really don't. It was good advice. It was. And that's who he is. Like he's, he's a man of few words, but when he opens his mouth, he's usually got a, a very sarcastic thing thing to say or something really you know valuable that you, you want to take with you exactly 
Rich is going to talk to your dad and try to get him on the podcast too, by the way. That, that's definitely going to happen. I, we'll, we'll see how it goes. <laughs> they, were, they were in the same VFW post in Holden Beach, North Carolina. So Yeah, but the problem with getting him on a podcast, you might need 12 hours because he's going to say seven words in 12 hours. You know? <laughs> like, you're, you're like, this is the worst podcast ever. <laughs> <laughs> well, Rich will be on the hook to talk a lot then. That won't be so bad. But, but Rich, you know, you could get it out of him maybe because every time I ask him about his background, I'm like, dude, you know, you know, you work for the three letter agency. We're like, who you support him? He just laughs. He's like, nah, nah, nah. Yeah. I'm like, come on, man. Like, you're 82 years old. Who gives a crap? You know, like, everything you've done is back to your historic days. You're de- declassified by now. He's like, nah, nah, nah. nah I never did that. I'm like, all right, I got you. <laughs> it, it, it kind of becomes a way of life. Yeah, I know. It's, but he frustrates the heck out of me to this oh. day. Oh yeah, I got it. I, the last conversation I had with him was was just after your wedding, and I ran into him in a in a the parking lot of a food line in North Carolina, and I said, "Hey, Larry, did you go to the wedding? How was it?" Because I knew you guys were getting married. Because when we saw you in November, you were headed for the National Cathedral to look at that, and then the wedding shortly thereafter. And he said, "Oh yeah," he yep. said it was a great wedding. Best part of it, I didn't have to pay for it, and that was all he had to say. that's it yeah that that that's true larry groberg (laughs) yeah it's so uh it's so much fun trying to describe him but when i say he's a man of very few words he is a man of very few words like that dude does he's not gonna be chatting your your ear off forever and of course the brain aneurysm yeah. Uh, that uh, he's had over the years, uh, he just can't talk like he used to. And I finally got him to admit how frustrating that is to him because I knew my dad when he was still going to Alaska and fishing and hunting with his buddies, right? Live off the land for 10 days to 14 days, right? Yep. Like that was like, that's the guy I knew who could just speak to you about the world and give you so much wisdom when you asked and you wanted to listen to him, right? And I mean, I, you wanted, you wanted, yeah, you always wanted to listen to him after he had his first brain aneurysm where he just can't speak the way he used to and so that made a person that you know didn't say much say even less which is a loss for us in the world yep. but nonetheless man that guy is you know he's my he's my number one if i have to have a hero and that's just, you know my uncle and him but and when you stop and, and think about it this is a guy that's probably talked his way out of more problems in more places in the world than any of us would have ever put together. If you add all of our experiences together, he's been there, done that, and talked himself out of more problem areas than he's ever, ever run into. Yo, this guy speaks, he speaks like eight languages, eight to nine languages. He's been in prison in Zambia for being accused of being a spy. And his story goes, I was just there with Motorola. They wanted some solar panels and this one government building. So you just went in there and we just, we were just taking a couple of pictures and it, it was a big misunderstanding. I'm like what? <laughs> a big misunderstanding. <laughs> yeah. And then, and then like, I'm like, well, how'd you get out? He's like, well, you know, honestly, like it, it, it was pretty scary because they tackled us in the cell and we saw a priest come by. We asked him if he spoke English. He spoke English, obviously. And this priest, you know, we didn't know where he was from and, we told him, like, hey, just relay a message to the embassy that Larry Groberg is and whoever his other buddy was. We're here and just come get us, right? And they did. They were eventually released. I'm like, dad, that is not a normal story. That's not a businessman's story. It's really <laughs> not. Like, and you don't just get out of these situations. Like, and I told him, like, if you're a spy, you suck because you got caught so easily. So then I was just point, like, you see, I'm not a spy. That's not, that's, I would never get caught with a spy. And I was like, damn it. 
I want to write a book on his life one day. That's one of my goals. I actually don't want to write it. I want someone else to write it, but you know, it's going to happen. All right. So Flo, you, your, your dad is a, a businessman, quote, quote, for, for Motorola, quote, quote, he's, he's right. serving or doing something all over the world. Obviously that's, it's very impactful. You know, the, the two people, your, your father and, and your uncle, and you join the army and we'll, we'll fast forward a little bit through, you know, ranger school and platoon leader stuff and, and deployments in Afghanistan and, and kind of the, the rage that you felt there. Like what, what was it that prepared you for, for what you call your, your eight seconds of, of courage? Like what, what was your motivation? It's, it's a lot more than just eight seconds of courage. I mean, it's, it's a lifetime that precedes that. And it's, it's the values that you hold dear and, and the people to your left and the people to your right that you're leading and that you're, you're serving. I think it's every experience that you have in your life shapes you to be a person that maybe you don't even know you are in a very specific moment, um, specifically when you deal with danger. I'll, I'll be honest with you. You know, when I first got into combat, I had doubts, right, about myself in terms of, I always have doubts about myself, but I, I was wondering how I would react to, you know, the enemy shooting at me and, and, you know, as a lieutenant, right? Yeah. I mean, Rich is nodding, Rich is nodding his head North South and I'm nodding my head North South as well. It's, 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 it's a very common, it's, it's a common thing. We all have that. Right. But I was like, man, am I going to be the guy on the radio that starts speaking a million miles per hour? Or am I going to be the guy on the radio or not just, I mean, I, I said the radio because, you know, <laughs> we love our radio. But, you know, it's just a kind of an example of like, would I be the guy that completely becomes quiet because I just, I'm, you know, deer in headlights and I lose my shit. I have no idea how to lead anymore. Uh, would I cry power away? I don't know. Right. I had no idea. I would expect not to cry. Um, if I did, I would just turn in my ranger tab and just, you know, my uniform and go do something else. But I didn't know. I was a little nervous about, you know, how it would be like. And I come to find out. I don't know if it's, you know, growing up in the neighborhoods I grew up in France. I don't know if it's all the challenges I, I faced in my life coming up and, you know, the way I was raised. I don't know if it was being an athlete, Division One athlete, right? And going through a lot of moments in your life when no one's watching, you're trying to do the right thing to better yourself as an athlete and, and, and endure the pain. I don't know what it was, but I knew that after the first round went by my head that I was meant to do that for a living. I had no, I swear to God, I didn't have fear. I didn't have like an immense amount of anxiety. I had sort of like an adrenaline kicked in and it was actions on. And I, I felt super focused to the point where Sergeant Bolden was my driver. One day told me, he's like, you can't scare me, sir. Like you're like a sociopath, whatever you call it. He's like, you're one of those guys like where when things go really haywire, you just like, you just stay super cool. And it's kind of freaky at times. And I took that as a compliment at the time. You know, I didn't know how else to take it. Uh, but I was very blessed that I was that type of individual that could actually, you know, think through things in the right way with the right composure in moments of complete chaos. And then the other piece you add on top of that is I really, really, really truly cared about my teammates and about the mission, but most importantly about the people. And so at an early stage in my military career in combat, I knew that I was willing to die for my team no matter who they were, my first tour and my second tour. Um, I knew that I was, if I had to put myself in a position that was going to bring pain and potentially my, my, you know, my life uh, on the line, I would be okay with it. 
and I never truly feared death. I never did. What I did fear was amputation. I fear blindness. I'm serious. Like I even wrote this in one of my journals that I had. I was like, I really, my biggest fear is, is that I would lose my hand, right? From an IED or, or anything. And that was selfish for me to think that way, but that was the way I thought about it. Uh, but my life, that was the foolable. Man, I mean, I, I think that was, it was like that for, for a lot. I mean, I, IEDs were, were this generation's sniper, right? I mean, it just crushed morale, right? You might go, and you have to just basically deal with it. But the fear always was, it's like you lose your junk. I mean, that would be, that's like yeah. one of those things. And God bless the, 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 the men and the women who have, right? It's just one of those things. It's like, man, I don't want that to happen, you know? So I, I found when, when you started talking and we'll rewind in, in, in just a second, but you know, after you had driven the, the suicide bomber away and you, you realized that your junk was still in order, it's, it's not like, it's not like you're going to sit and, and pop champagne bottles. Like as, as mentioned earlier, it's just like, that's a good feeling. Not, not, not only is it a good feeling, but it, it, it allowed me to, to continue to the next step in terms of, you know, taking care of myself on the battlefield where I'm bleeding out. So by that, I mean that if my junk wasn't there, I would have just laid there and died. <laughs> I'm not even kidding. People think I'm, I joke about it because, you know, I'm like, you know, and I just checked it, everything is good, but I'm serious. If they wouldn't have been there, and that, would, that was my mindset. I remember thinking, I'm like, this shit better be there because it's not in a game set match. Like, uh, there's so much blood. I didn't even know. I was, you know, this is before I started checking myself with other wounds. If, and I saw my leg, right? So I knew my leg was just completely destroyed. And okay, so Flo, let's let's rewind. Let's rewind just a little bit. A lot of people know your story. Yeah. A few people might not. So your second tour, you're doing PSD. You're doing. You're a security detail for uh, some some higher ups, and you notice something is not quite right. Yeah. So this was August 8, 2012. We were on uh, this routine security patrol to, uh, uh, it was a security patrol for us, but it was a routine patrol to go to a security meeting in a Kunar province for uh, uh, Governor Wahid, so in starting Kunar province. And we had done this a few times during the, throughout the, the, that tour, and we were six months in. And on that day, I recommend people to kind of like read about it, uh, because there's quite a few things written about it. I don't want to go too deep into it, but uh, we we didn't have the adequate security element that I requested, and I had a heavy security detail in terms of of VIPs. I had two brigade commanders, three, three battalion commanders, Afghan generals, two command arm majors, two GS-15 State Department individuals, and you know six security plus the two other dudes that I plucked out of the, out of nowhere. And so we went out there, and it was an 1100 meter movement that crosses a, a bridge before we get to the comp set of stairs that lead us to the compound and about 700 meters into it you know we knew it felt eerie yeah i tell you what like i've you, you two have been completely understand this piece right you just know sometimes that things just doesn't feel right uh and you just hope it's just your you know it's just your spidey senses kicking in a little bit too strong that day uh but that day i had feeling i had a feeling that something was going to go wrong um, I didn't like it. Everything was wrong. As soon as I landed, I put my feet all out of the helicopter and then the, the security element I wanted, I felt something was wrong. And it, it, it felt scripted almost. And yeah, 700 meters into the movement, they came at us. Uh, two guys on motorcycles came at us, out of patrol as fast as they could around this uh, this curve. I had actually taken Afghan National Army. They were, they were smoking cigarettes by the gate. 
that pissed them off because I told them to come join us in the, and <laughs> on our patrol. And the reason I did that is, even though I didn't, I didn't trust them, uh, we had a lot of green on blues, which means Afghans turning on U.S. troops that tour. Um, I needed to appear bigger. And so I put them all up front, and um, I had my platoon sergeant right behind them guide the pace. And they did a good job. And I mean, they did a really good job. Susan Mortacco started going towards us and them. The dude, the, the point man, raised his rifle and started screaming in Dari, which like forced the guys in the motorcycles to like drop. Like, I mean, it, it fell off the bike. And, you know, they got up and started running away. But this entire situation was just a diversion. Really, what it did is it created a, a, a time period for the suicide bombers to come out of the compound right next to us as we were walking. And he was walking, you know, backwards parallel to us when I noticed him. And he kind of did a, you know, 180 degree turn and then another 90 degree turn towards us and started walking really fast towards um, my patrol. And honestly, I remember thinking like, geez, what is wrong with this guy? Who the hell is he? Is he, you know, mentally challenged? Because that has happened a few times and he's not, you know, he doesn't understand like coming towards U.S. crews when walking on patrol is a big no-no. And Nah, in this case, he was a bad dude. And so I, I, I couldn't see a weapon, so I couldn't engage him, right? I yelled at him right off the bat. And then at that point, I immediately like left my position and started running towards him, screaming at him and cursing at him. And he never looked at me, kept walking fast towards us. I could see his eyes looking past me, and it was freaking eerie. And so when I got to him, I hit him, I grabbed him. I did some really nice work to him, and I, I threw him as far away from everybody as quickly as possible. But... The crazy thing is when I when I when I got my hands on him, that's when I realized he was wearing a suicide vest. And so the only thing I could think, I I, I turned around, I said bomb, and um and I just drove him as far as I could from everyone else because at that moment the only thing I could think of was I gotta I gotta get him away from my dude. He's about to kill all of us. And so I uh in that sense I was ready. I was pretty much I made my you know my peace. I was ready to die, right? And uh, you know you don't survive these usually. And so I threw him, he landed on the ground, chest first, and I watched him, um, I watched the um, the dead man's trigger. He had pressed the trigger on it already, he, he was committed, come out of his hand, and that's when everything went black. Yeah, so you, you lost, you lost four people. And your your promise is you're, you're going to tell their story every time someone asks to hear yours. So let's, let's hear their story a little bit. Yeah, I mean, I lost Tom, Major Griffin, Major Gray, Major Kennedy, and uh, Reggie Abdel-Fatah. Uh, Griffin, you know, Wyoming boy, wrestler, amazing man, father for Kylie and, and, and Dane. And Dane was in the Army. It was in the Army at the time as well. Now, wife Pam, I'm actually going to be in Wyoming. Uh, my first trip out of the state of Washington, out of my house, really, on August 8th during our uh, uh, live day to go uh, do a dedication for him in his hometown, the Riverton. Um, but anyway, he, uh, you know, he's a father figure to me. And that's it. I spent a lot of time with him. At night, talking to him, trying to pick his brain as a star major. Wanted to under- I wanted to understand the NCO Corps a little bit better, so I could be a better effective you know, officer in the military. Uh, and I knew that nothing you accomplish as an officer can can be accomplished without support and guidance and mentorship from your NCOs. So I, I picked his brain as much as I could, and we became friends. Right? Like, I mean, there was obviously that business professional relationship, but I knew I could consider him a friend. Then we had Gray. Gray was a uh, amazing, amazing dude, uh, Air Force man. He was just uh, this guy. First of all, always wore the smallest freaking Ranger panties I've ever seen in my life, and he did it because he was incredibly well built and he was a monster athlete. 
And I used to always make fun of him. And then he just kind of look at me and smile. But he, <laughs> you know, three kids, um, three kids. And he just moved to Colorado right before the deployment. And we just bonded, man. Like, you know, very religious and, and such a smart and super well-respected dude who every day I saw him overseas, he'd be like, hey, I'm going to jump in a helicopter with you. I'm going to jump in a helicopter. And every time I would make a spot, he said, no, nah, take one of my guys. He needs to go see that aerial operation. He always made his team first, and he always, you know, took the time to develop his guys and gals, um, and I admired him for it. Kennedy had just gotten there. I think he was two, three weeks in there. He was, the, you know, he was about to take fire, um, the, the fire team out there, and and he was an unbelievable guy, West Pointer, hockey man, uh, just had a year old twins. So, and he was super excited about going out on uh, on that patrol with us because after the security meeting, we were going to Five Joyce where he was going to meet some of the soldiers under his command, some of the artillery guys, and, and just kind of get an understanding of the security situation out there in uh, in that area. And, you know, he was just super new there. And so big smile on his face. And then he had reggae. Shit, man, reggae was probably the, one of the nicest people I've ever met in my life. Uh, he's of Egyptian descent, you know, a naturalized U.S. citizen, and he came here and he wanted to do more for the Afghan population, right? Uh, USAID, I mean, he was talking about agricultural stuff, and he was figuring out ways, you know, to work with farmers and the local uh, district governors and trying to give them the supplies and the training and the understanding of what they could do instead of growing poppy fields. They could grow wheat, corn, all that good stuff, right? And so he never carried a weapon. And, you know, these four guys all played a different role in my life. Obviously, Kennedy left because he'd just gotten there. Honestly, that was the second time I ever met him. When we, you know, the first time was the night before. He asked me if he could join us on, on the ride. But I've, I've got, I feel like I've gotten to know him really well over the years after the, uh, the incident because I've, you know, I'm close to his family and I've heard so many stories from different friends. But there were four great Americans, all represented us you know, to the best of their abilities. And they all cared about doing some good, you know, serving our military or serving our U.S. government, most importantly, serving other people. And they died on that day because two suicide bombers decided to go out and, you know, create um, chaos. And I, it pisses me off. It pisses me off because uh, you, I, I, I led that team. And so you're always trying to figure out a way that you could have done it better and brought everyone home, but it just pisses me off that that's, that's the world, the world that we were in, like that people would be willing to put a bomb on their chest and walk in the middle of the street and blow themselves up to kill you. I just find that to be coward. Um, I find no, no, I have no respect for it. Yeah. So Flo, the, you, you detail a lot of your, your struggles afterward, right? And you know, it's, it's counterintuitive that you, you tackle someone to the ground and you don't die and people that you love do. And you, you talk a lot about how that's, that's very impactful. I mean, it's, it's, it's textbook survivor's guilt, right? It's just really yep. up close and personal. And you were awarded the, the, the medal of honor. I mean, it's the nation's highest military honor. And you know, you talk about it's not a, it's not a happy moment. It's not like you won the Super Bowl or something. You you think about those four lives that were lost, and you carry them them with you, and you become a representative for the army, for our country, for the values that we hold dearest in in this land called America. And yet, you know, you, you got moments that you're you're not 
you're not on stage, it's you and Carson, or it's you and your, your, your buddies, or it's, or it's just you. What does that actually feel like now as you just, you process? I mean, your survivor's guilt is an evolution. Yeah. And, and nothing you ever do will ever bring them back. And you, I like, God damn, man, you did your part. And I know that it still eats away at you. So I, I, it took me a long time, but you, you started to understand that that's the thing about war. That's why war is so ugly. It's not fair. You could be the best of the best, have all the equipment in the world, and a straight bullet, right? A random bullet or, or an IED or something, you know, will take you or take away, or take more, even worse, one of your friends away. And you have to understand that that's why, you know, war should be the last outcome always in terms of a way to settle a grievance or a disagreement, right? But the idea of the metal in that moment, that doesn't work for me, right? I never, I've never felt it was deserved. And uh, guess what? Majority, 90% of the recipients, I would say, would, would tell you, probably all, all 100% and 90% feel it that way, but would tell you the same thing. Because on that day when I received the medal, I felt shame. I felt shame that I was being recognized for a failure. I was felt shame that I had four gold star families that had to live with a loved one that they'll never get, they never get to see and touch and, and, and kiss and spend time with for the rest of their lives. And that, you know, here's a person that's always going to remind them, you know, of that moment, right? Everything that I do, every action, every recognition, every show, every podcast, all that stuff, whether or not they want to admit it, that's going to be a consistent reminder. Every post that I put on social media, a, re- a reminder of their loved one that didn't come home that day. So I knew that I had a responsibility to make sure that I earned that moment. And by that, I mean, I earned it for them, that I would represent them and my brothers who didn't come home. But I felt like on, I come to an understanding for me that I was ready to die. And many of my friends were like, I think we all, we understood like that was a definite possible uh, possibility. And, and that was our reality. And when you're dead, you're dead, you're gone. Right. The people that, that, that suffer are the people who are left behind. That's your family, your friends, uh, the unit, the people you serve with. And so I, I realized that I needed to go out there and every single day of my life, never change who I am. And I make Carson promise that any time that I would start, you know, acting in a way that seemed like I deserve something, you know, based off the metal or whatever, that she would bring me back, right, you know, back, back to earth. And she had. There are times where I'm frustrated, right? Events, calls, speeches. And I'm like, God, I don't want to do this. You know, and I'm like, why the hell? Like, just leave me alone. Or like, I start getting short tempered. And she's like, you need to check yourself, guy. Like, you need to realize, like, you, you are no better than no one else. And you have a responsibility. And so that's how I live my life. That's how I accept it. I look at the metal. You know, it's right next to me. It's on, it's not in a cage. It's just sitting there on, you know, on my, Kunar Afghanistan OEF 10 uh, gift that I received from my team back in 2011. And it's just sitting out of the case. And it's a reminder that I'm a courier of it. I need to earn it, respect it, represent it, because it represents all of us, most specifically represents those who give me the ultimate sacrifice and their families. And that's how I deal with it. Uh, but the last piece I'll say is, if it hasn't changed me, it will never change me. I'm still flow. Um, I'm still, you know, an idiot at times and I work just like you work. I, you know, put all my pants just like, I, you know, everybody else put on their pants. I don't go to a restaurant and, and get, you know, free stuff. And that's just because I don't want it ever. You know, I want to live my life, give back, earn it and, and be a good American. And 
hopefully when I die, people remind, you know, they remember me, they'll be like, oh, Flo, he was a good husband, great father, he really served his community, you know, good businessman. Oh, and by the way, he served his country on him. He did receive the Medal of Honor. I got two more questions for you, Flo. First is, is how important is Carson to you? Uh, most important thing in the world, man. Right, 100% without a doubt, most important thing in the world. She is saying, <laughs> she'll kick my ass. <laughs> most important person in the world. Um, I, I, I wouldn't be who I am today. I, I probably, you know, could have been a chance I wouldn't be here if it wasn't for her. Uh, she grounds me. She, she's the, the light of my life. And I really, really, truly understand love and, and feel love because of her. And she, she just fits, man. I, I, I think I fit in her world. She fits in my world. And I, she's my consultant. She's my best friend. She's my wife. She's everything to me. So, huh, so blessed. Yeah, you you had a great, you know, because we we were in New York City at the Veterans Day Parade, and then you know at the end it's like we peeled off. We didn't have anywhere to be. We went and we're watching the football games and the whatever. It was it was warmer inside with a, even though the beer was cold, it was still a lot warmer. I think we got some soup or something. And you two are just great, you know. It's like how I feel about M. Is what I see with, with you two. I, I know how I, I just I know how important it is to have a community loved one loved ones around when you're, you're going through a lot and you know, it's, it's too much for any one man by himself forever is what I'm getting at. And, and you need, yeah. you need support and there's no, there's no shame in that. That's, that's strengthening. I a hundred percent agree. I think, you know, same thing. it goes, it goes to her too. And the biggest lesson I've had to learn, honestly, because you know, the, I, I, we talked about the metal brings a lot of attention, right? And I think one of the, the biggest lessons I had to learn early on in our relationship is that she's not the type of person that's going to be like, hey, what about me, right? But I, I really want, yeah, if you dismiss my wife when I introduce her to you, good luck talking to me, right? You're dead to me, like seriously, because that's disrespect to her, that's disrespect to me. She is the most important person in my life. And so you better, you know, if I introduce you to her, you better show some respect. Second, I need to be as supportive in her career and her goals and her aspirations as she is with me. And uh, I, last year, it really came to, it just freaking like light bulb and, and really frustrated with um, a lot of things that were happening. So much was happening, right? And I really sat myself down. I'm like, I need, she never complains, but like, I'm, she had an event in California during the Army-Navy game. So two years ago, I apologize, two years ago, Army-Navy game, right? And I don't want to miss the Army-Navy game. No way. But she had just been, you know, with her company and that was her, her first sort of like Christmas event, you know, team out. And she she really wanted me to be there. But she didn't even ask. She, she's like, I know you're going to be in, in Philadelphia and with the Army-Navy game. And I was like, screw that. I'm going to be at your party, and I'm going to be there with you to celebrate you. And that's the way it should be. She's first. That's a partnership. That's a partnership, yeah. It's a commitment. So last question is, what's your advice to the next generation, how to leave a positive mark, how to lead a positive life, how to make a difference in the world, how to serve others best. What, what's your advice? Read and learn your history. What paved the way to, you know, to the moment that you are currently in, to your presence. Understand what has happened in our world and our society over the years, over the decades. You're talking about the military. You know, know about the history of the military, the battles that we fought, the men and women that put on the uniform, the things that sacrificed, the pride and the honor behind wearing that uniform. You know, for me, one of the biggest things was really motivating me is having those Vietnam veterans 
get on our motorcycles and their cars and their flags and all that good stuff, take us to the airport on our way to the appointment, telling us they loved us and they're proud of us, and then being there on our way back. When they didn't have that in their time. Instead, they had anger, people cursing at them, throwing bags at them, right, with some, you know, foul stuff in it, right? Uh, they were called names and they were just completely thrown away by society. And instead of being angry, instead of hating us and despising us because of all the love that we get compared to what they had, they made sure that no one in the world would treat us the way they were treated. And that they would be out there walking the walk and protecting us against that. I mean, if you don't want to understand where they come from and why they're doing this, you are missing a great opportunity to understand of what is going on now and, and why people are reacting a specific way and, and, and why people have reacted specific ways, you know, in the past. And you just can't move us forward. And that's the one advice that I, I'd give my, you know, a, a young lieutenant, a young soldier. Like, man, know where you come from. Like, pick up a book, watch, a, you know, a documentary, go, to, you know, start a conversation you know, immerse yourself in it and get some background and get yourself a little bit of history and then understand why it's so important to wear the uniform and the commitment and responsibility behind it. I think that will be a good start. And I think that in everything that I do in my professional life and in my personal life, I take that lesson uh, and, I, and I start to read. But everything is going on now, racial injustice is going on, right? The Black Lives Matter pieces, uh, even the pandemic, right? I start to read and I start to, you know, I pick conversations with different folks from all different backgrounds and trying to get their opinions so I can formulate the right type of mindset for me. And I can also justify my feelings behind it or, or challenge myself to, to look at it a different way, right? It's a way of grounding myself, but also not becoming an ignorant person. Well, you had, Rich was just nodding really big when he started mentioning the, the, the Vietnam era kind of, I never thought about it like that just doing a 180 and making sure that, that, that we, our generation never felt the, the way that, that, that they did. So Rich, yeah. you got anything, you got anything sort of parting shot for Flo before he, he's got to bounce? I think Flo, I think you've done a, a, a great service to our nation. That's no question. Uh, you do a great service to your family, to Carson and yourself. Uh, and you do a great service to America by speaking out about these kinds of things. Not, not about the, the metal or any, any of that. It's, your position as an individual that has a pulpit to speak from, and you speak from the heart when you talk to people. As you talked about your uncle, you know, I, I listened to a guy that was very patriotic, that was full of life, and his life was stopped. The, the same is true of the, of the four guys you mentioned on the day of the incident. The key is, in, to me, in this life, there are things that are never going to be explained but we can live our lives for them the better for it, having known them and taking their commitment to life and your commitment to life forward in a positive way. And I appreciate the fact that you're doing that so well. well that means the world to me, Rich. And you know, I think, I think the world of you. Thank you. Uh, you have a very interesting background. We're not going to get into, but put it this way. Uh, I wouldn't want to be your enemy in a back alley. So that's just, that's as far as I'll go. <laughs> we'll sit down sometime with a cold beer and talk some more about that. And maybe we'll get your dad in on the conversation too. Oh gosh. Oh, I'd love that. <laughs> Flo, we love you. Keep up the great work. You're, I mean, I don't say this in a superficial way. I say this in, in a very direct and, and honest way. Like you're, 
you're an inspiration and you, you represent us well. And, and I'm grateful to you for that. And just stay, stay true to your true North man and, and just keep it up. Well, Jason, I appreciate you, my friend. I got my Gorok pack, you know, ready for my adventures. And, you know, I respect everything that you do, your service, and you wanted to share these stories with, with the world. So thanks a lot. You two are outstanding Americans. Just, I'm just grateful I get to call you friends. Thanks, Lo. We love you. Have a good one. Take care, guys. All right, Rich. What'd you think? You were, you were focused on the word courier. Yeah, he said it in, in, in talking about the Medal of Honor. And I don't know that he even thought about the way he said it, but he said he was a courier, and that's exactly what he is. He's a proper courier. He's carrying the message, the message of, of lives, although dearly lost, lives well spent doing what they chose to do. Yeah, so a, li- a little bit more about hanging out with Flo in, in New York City a couple of years ago, you get the sense from chatting with him, he's got a lot of energy and he's just a great representative. You know, loves America because he knows what it's like to not be here. You know, served America because he loved America. I mean, just, there's just such wisdom and perspective. And that's kind of what I was getting at in the beginning I mean, Flo's a guy you want to sit down and chat with for hours and hours, right? Oh, yeah. But, you know, in, in the beginning of, of just chatting, it's like growing up in France and not with a lot of money and spend some time overseas. You know, I've been to Algeria. It's not exactly the same as France, right? I mean, there was a, a major, major war there in the, in the 50s that his, his family, they were involved in that fight. And anyway, Flo is just has this perspective that you get from, from service. And I'm just probably around people who have served in the military a little bit more, but people who have served in the military and have, have stared death down and there's just this love of life. So we're at the, the, the New York city veterans day parade a couple years ago and it's, it's cold, but it's, it's the sun's out. Right. And, you know, flows in, in the sort of car that they put the grand marshal in he's in there with Carson. And then Em and I are, are there and we're sort of around as well. And he's like, hey, come on up in the car and sit in the car with us. And so we sat in the car. It's a, it's a surreal thing. And there's people lining the sides and Flo's like, you know what? I don't want to be in the car anymore. So he gets out of the car and we follow Flo's lead, right? I mean, he's the Medal of Honor recipient. You know, he's the, the grand marshal. He's the grand marshal of the whole parade. Yeah. And we just start going up and thanking people for, for showing up. They had their you know, I, God bless America. We love America. Thank you for your service type stuff. And it was just, that felt a lot better than just sitting in the car and waving. And, and that's just something, you know, flows a little bit younger, like just wanted to, you know, get out and see the folks. And, and that's just the energy that he brings to everything that everything he does that I see. And it's just always, you know, there's just such a, there's such an aura and, and of energy around him. And you just, it's just kind of electric. You want to kind of, hey, Flo, what are you doing? And it's, and it's cool. Energy and interest. He's interested in everybody and everything. And it's an honest interest. It's not a, a put on. It's not, it's not some way to carry him through a situation. He's truly interested. Talking to people from all walks of life. And you could hear that in his upbringing in France. The diversity of the neighborhood that he lived in, he embraced that. He loved that. 
that's probably one of the things that stood him well in the army as he came to work with troops and and he had to to work with so many different people from so many different backgrounds it was like coming home to him and that along with his his family and the way they reacted to situations they didn't react as if it was a terrible hardship sure it was it was hard his mother worked really hard he worked hard to go to school walking to and from school uphill both ways <laughs> it was just it was great to hear that that he's out there doing this and he learned that from the people around him from his mother from from his father Larry Groberg from his uncle Abud in 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 uh, Algeria it's an interesting life it's a life fulfilled and it's a life of patriotism patriotism for the country patriotism for the world yeah so you won't hear this right cuz flows not the kind of He's not a guy with a lot of self-pity, right? I mean, if it, go read his book, by the way. It's, it's, a, it's a good story. Well, anytime someone wins the Medal of Honor, there's a good story there. So that's not saying anything new. It's, just, it's about kind of the recovery process as well. Describes himself as depressed and suicidal and all these things. And, you know, the, the amount that you have to sort of overcome once you've been through something like this. But when you, when you describe, Listen to him describe how much he enjoyed the army. He had found his calling. The man is a warrior. And on that day, for those actions that he took, there were four men whose lives were lost. And, you know, Flo's career, he, he's no longer able to do that job. And, and so you have to make peace with that as well. Because, I mean, couldn't you just feel it, Rich, when he's oh, yeah. describing how it's like, you know, I, I saw when he's like, look, the, the rounds started flying and I got calm. And you're like, hmm. you know, that, that's just a sign that someone is doing what they're meant to be. And you can't know that. There's this fear of how will I respond when that stuff happens? You can't know for sure until it actually happens. And, and he, had, he had been through that. He, he did that and had found his, his calling of sorts, right? And was really good at it. And you know, it's part of the reason why he responded the way that he did on the day that he did. True. But, you know, there's a lot that you have to make peace with is what I'm getting at. And, and everyone has a lot to make peace with that's, that's lost someone. And so, you know, you, you, you earn the Medal of Honor. And I think the reason why I, I focused on the, the initial passage was it's, it's not something that, sure, when you go to war and you've trained for war, you want to experience it, but you don't want the bad stuff to happen. And, and that's one of those things for the ages, right? It's like, you can't reconcile the two. You train for war, you want to go to war, but you don't want the bad stuff to happen. And, and then it does. And then you have to deal with it. And it's, and it's, really, it's really hard. It is. And it, nobody joins the military to get an award of any kind. That isn't what it's all about. It's about service and becoming a servant to the nation. In his, in his particular case, a servant to the nation that he has now found his home in. Regardless of why he came here, because if it was McDonald's or Michael Disneyland Jordan. Or Come Michael on. Jordan. Michael Jordan, let's, let's, and the let's Chicago go with that. Bulls. Yeah, right? you know, I mean, <laughs> whatever. That, that may have brought him here, but he found who he really is, and that is a warrior servant. And that's, that's where he was comfortable. That's where he was 
doing what he was meant to do. He was meant to be a warrior at those locations. And if you read the book, multiple locations where he did just fine, that he responded in ways that he wasn't sure how he was going to respond. And you're right. uh, None of us that have gone to war know how we're going to respond the first time or the second time or the third time or however many times it may be. It's a, it's a continual response. And you find out if you find out you're good at it, it doesn't mean that you're a war lover or an adrenaline junkie. You've just found what you're good at and you do what you're good at. And he did exactly that. He did what he was supposed to do. He did what he was meant to do. And, and lives were lost, but a lot of lives were saved. Absolutely. And, and yet, yeah. What advice would you give Flo or anyone out there that's dealing with some sense of survivor's guilt, which is, which is a lot of people that have served in, in the war since 2001 and obviously before that? Well, I think, I, I think Flo had the answer himself. Uh, I think he explained it very well right at the very end, and that is we have to educate ourselves, each of us, in where we have been and what we've done, why we did it, and why things occurred, understanding that all the questions that we have, why did we come back and somebody else didn't, are not necessarily going to be answered in this lifetime. But to understand, to read, the first thing he said was read, read and understand history. And this applies to everyone. It doesn't apply just to soldiers by any means. It implies, applies to everyone understand history so that we don't repeat the bad things and so that we can have a platform on which to build a better world as we move forward. And that sounds to me exactly like what Flo is doing. I am so proud of the way he responded and the way he continues to respond to the responsibility that was given to him in August of 2012. He was given a responsibility, and that was to take a message forward to those still living about the men that died, about himself, about America, and about the world in general, because we're all in this together. All right, Rich. So let's go a little deeper, because I, look, I think there's a lot of value for a lot of people that will be listening to this, to what, what you have to say, how you have dealt with this. Like, Let's talk about Let's talk about the box in your head a little bit. I know you don't want to, which is yeah, why it's so yeah. important that you, you talk about it. I'm not asking for the specific stories. I'm no, asking for, for how this works. How, how have you been able to process this? I'm not sure exactly where the initial thought came from. As I talked to a lot of mentors, people that had been my mentors in life early on, old soldiers that had seen far worse combat conditions than I did, over multiple wars, as I talked to them, the point that they made was you can't sit around and do nothing but think about particular incidents 24 hours a day, seven days a week, 365 days a year. You have to find a way to deal with that because there are going to be, as you go further in your military uh, career, you're going to run into situations that are even worse than what you've been through. So you need to consider that. So you need to find a way to deal with that. And, and the way I dealt with it, uh, I, I guess uh, the official term is compartmentalization. But what it boils down to for Richard Rice is I, I built this heavy 
solid wooden box with big steel bands around it, and it's in my head. And I take the bad things, the, the, the traumatic situations that I've been in, and I put them in that box and I shut the lid. And at my choosing, at the time that I feel it's appropriate, I open the box and I take those out. And I look at them and I think about them and I try to learn from them. And I'm able, as time goes on, to better comprehend all of the factors that played a part in that particular incident. Because when an incident first happens, you're, you're only looking at, at one or perhaps two planes, when in fact there's three or four or five planes of, of action that are occurring that create an incident. So I'm better able to intellectually look at those events. Emotionally, they're still disturbing at times, but the intellectualization, if that's a word, helps me to better understand and deal with it emotionally. So I look at them. If it starts to really get heavy on me, I put them back in the box, shut the box, and have a beer. And that's, that's how I do it. It's, it's, it's really simple. I try to make things in life as simple as possible because I'm a very simple man. And that's the way that I have found that works for me, that helps me to deal with that. And I think everybody that, that I know that deals well, in some way or other, compartmentalizes those kinds of events. Because if you do nothing except sit around in a, in a small apartment or a house or wherever you are, trailer, who cares, and just drink and think, that's a recipe for disaster. And I'm not about disaster. I'm about trying to get better. So the box is, in, in essence, you're preventing dealing with this in little doses every day, which would just, it's just going to ruin your fucking day. Yep. Right? So I, that's why I say I, I take these things out when I want to, not when they want me. When events want me, I don't answer. But in my time, when I'm comfortable, when I'm calm, then I'll take it out and I'll look at it, different angles, put it away to be looked at another day. And you, you do that over a lifetime. Now, will I, will I satisfy all those little things that are in that box in my lifetime? Probably not but I will be able to have lived a good life throughout as opposed to having every day ruined because that weird thoughts back there. All right. We thank you so much for listening to this episode of glorious professionals. Hope you enjoyed flow. Hope you enjoyed some, some extra time with rich here at the end. And, uh, I'll just say thanks for the support that you've given us out there. These episodes are, they're not only fun. They're not only interesting, but they're, they're kind of cathartic as well. It's refreshing to listen to people share their stories of service and sacrifice and how they live their lives. I've always been fascinated by this because you win the Medal of Honor like Flo, you got a lot of engagements. You get really good at sort of, you, you get your polish. And I, I know because I'm, I'm sitting here looking at Rich too, and he's got a, Rich has got a couple stories and he knows how to tell those stories and they're not inside. They're like kind of the ones he's authorized to be more outside the box more of the time. And he's got those stories about this incident and that incident. And I just find it really fascinating to hear someone like Flo's story about how he grew up and how that led to, to where he is now. And, and oh, by the way, he won the Medal of Honor in the middle, but it, it will define him, but it doesn't define him. It's, it's eight seconds of something. It's one mission of something. 
it, it just, it was something that was meant to be at that time. And flow was flow and flow is flow and flow will be flow. That's been my experience with him. And, you know, I, I feel the same way about the guy sitting to my left right now, Rich. And it's just, this is, this is uh, an experiment for us in how to, how to bring people on and, and learn from their stories. And we're grateful and hope that you all enjoy this stuff as well. And we appreciate you. So thanks for listening.